If there is a great theological insight from the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century that can continue to instruct, correct, and enliven our faith, it is this. You cannot know God. God is a reality bigger, greater, richer, deeper than any human concept can grasp. In fact, it's even greater than any religion or ritual could ever contain. Language itself is insufficient as a means to speak for God. That reformer, John Calvin, not known as one to mince words, he put it pretty bluntly when he said, in seeking God, miserable men do not rise above themselves as they should, but measure him by the yardstick of their own carnal stupidity and neglect sound investigation. Thus, out of curiosity, they fly off into empty speculations. The Scots Confession of 1560, composed largely by John Knox, who was a follower of John Calvin. He studied with him in Geneva, and then he traveled back to Scotland and brought the reformed expression of faith to his native country. In the Scots Confession, describes God's inscrutable providence, which means God's providence that cannot be known. And even when talking about the church, those who've been called by God into his communion, Knox notes that the church itself is invisible, known only to God. So just because you go to church and participate in worship, that doesn't even mean that you know who God is. And so in Reformed churches, we are hesitant, dare I say we tremble, before we speak with much assurance about who God is, or what God wants, or how God acts. For we know that we are all too prone to exercise our carnal stupidity and come up with an image of God that is far less than the God who is God. Instead, what we do a lot more is we talk about what it means to be known by God rather than to speak of what we know of God. We believe that the only thing we can know of God is what God has revealed to us. And by faith, we believe that God has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ and through the scriptures that bear witness to his life and work. So you'll find that we'll say things like, you are loved by God. You have been called by God. You have been redeemed by God. But in all those phrases, God is the initiator and the actor. We are the recipients, the ones acted upon, and the most we can do is respond with our lives and with our gratitude. I wish I had known this in high school English class. I cannot tell you the number of papers I got back from teachers so they would scrawl in the margin, passive voice, underline, underline, exclamation point, exclamation point. They were trying to teach me to use active voice. It makes the essay move better. It's more enjoyable to read. It gives agency to the character or to me as the writer to move the piece along with active verbs. I wish I had known Reformed theology better because I could have simply replied to my teachers, look, I'm a Presbyterian. 
we believe that all of life is passive voice. God is the initiator and the actor. We are simply the recipients and then the responders. This emphasis on the unknowability of God and the claim that we have, um, that we have been chosen pulls the Reformed faith in two contrasting directions that lead us to a rather confusing and paradoxical existence. One drive is to create a church based solely on God's self-revelation as it has come to us and nothing more. The closer we can get back to God's disclosure, God's own self-revelation, the closer we will get to pure and undefiled religion. You find evidence of this in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. The removal of aspects of the church that were part of the Roman church that weren't expressly described in the Bible. The use of the common language in the worship service. The opening up of the Lord's Supper to more people. The elimination of indulgences. The smashing of statues and stained glass windows. All in an effort to return the church to its pure form as it has been revealed through Jesus Christ and in the words of Scripture. No carnal stupidity of humanity to be involved. But the opposite is true as well. To calcify the faith in God's self-revelation as it has been known in a particular historical moment is to turn the faith into what begins to look like a Civil War reenactment. Or like you're attending a cosplay event and everybody's dressed up like a Jedi pretending they're part of Star Wars, but we don't live long ago in a galaxy far, far away. To create this pure and undefiled religion ultimately creates an idolatrous one. It confines and limits the revelation of God. So instead, the other push is we're thrust forward to discern the working of God's Holy Spirit and self-revelation in light of modern and contemporary issues, human rights, national governments, marriage and family issues, astronomy, physics, biology, a faith that refuses to claim that it has a full knowledge of God must be a faith that continues to wrestle with God's self-revelation within the realities of the world we inhabit each day. The result of these two poles pulling against one another at the same time leaves Reformed Christians never feeling particularly comfortable with ourselves or assured of our knowledge of God. If you settle easily into the pole that's restoring the faith to its pure revelation in God, you are limiting God's freedom. But to go too far to interpret God always in light of modern and contemporary issues is to risk devaluing God's sovereignty. 
And so we cling to both. To be a Reformed Christian is to live in perpetual discomfort. You can see why we're not the largest expression of Christian faith in the world. The best way to figure out then how we're to live in such a confusing faith with a lofty vision of an unknowable God and yet how we can embody that faith in the current moment, the best way to do that is to look to people who have embodied it and lived before us. Those who have invited us in to this discomforting faith and told us that somehow by the mystery of God's Spirit they have found within it Assurance and even joy. This goes back all the way to the Apostle Paul, the first Christian theologian who was trying to take what he knew of God's revelation to his people, the Jewish people, and figure out what he does with that now that he has been, um, now that he has seen the risen Jesus, God's raising Jesus from the dead, this new revelation that's come before him. And so when Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, He's trying to talk about how to embody this impossible faith. And he says, those who do so, we come to you without deceit, without impure motives. They're not going to use trickery. They're not going to use words that please people. They're not going to be the folks who flatter or who exercise greed. Paul says, that is cheap faith. That is a faith that is too simple a faith that's just a hit of dopamine or a shot of adrenaline, faith that lines the pockets of those in charge and betrays the trust of those who give themselves over to the community, that faith has grown too comfortable. Instead, A faith that holds to a God who is God and lives in the tension of God's freedom and God's sovereignty, it leads to a life of humility that looks like a mother nursing her own child at the breast. Gentle care, soft shushing, rubbing her fingers through her baby's hair, sitting up all night with the colic, laughing when that burp finally surfaces. Paul's image of the nurse caring for her own child, he's revealing something to us about this impossible Christian faith. It's not something you can actually teach. It's something that you catch. And you catch it from those who share their own selves, who care deeply for you, who express and show a love that gives in a way like it's pouring out one's own life out of your own body to provide the necessary nourishment for the life of another. All this language of 
Calvin and Knox and the Scots Confession and theological poles and tension. It's all good. It's all important. But it's only good and important as it is drawing us to one another so that we are sharing our own selves, so that we are becoming dear to one another. George Buttrick was the senior pastor of the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City in the 1950s. At that time, Madison Avenue was the largest Presbyterian church in the city of New York. Dr. Buttrick was named one of the most prominent preachers in America at the time by Life magazine. He was said to study for four hours every day. He was an adjunct faculty at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He was the general editor of the first edition of the Interpreter's Bible Commentary. Every year, Madison Avenue Prez took on 10 seminary interns in the city of New York, pastors in training, to hone their skills. And every Sunday evening, Dr. Buttrick would meet with those interns in his manse, in his apartment in New York. This man, this prominent preacher known all over the whole country, this significant theologian, this leader among the city establishment, would come in to his apartment on Sunday evenings with these 10 interns, he would take off his shoes and loosen his tie. He would sit on the floor and lean against the radiator and ask them, what is it that you all want to talk about tonight? One of those nights, one of those students asked him, Dr. Buttrick, what is the most important thing you do in a week? One of the students who was listening there before him was a Pentecostal from Montana named Eugene Peterson who was studying Semitic languages at a seminary in New York. This is how he remembers Buttrick's response. For two hours every Tuesday and Thursday afternoon, I walk through the neighborhood and make home visits. There is no way that I can preach the gospel to these people if I don't know how they are living, what they are thinking and talking about. Preaching is proclamation, God's word revealed in Jesus, but only when it gets embedded in conversation, in a listening ear, and a responding tongue, does it become gospel. Eugene Peterson says that was the moment that he realized what it meant to be a pastor. I would tell you that's what it means to be a Christian. to embrace this glorious gift of grace that surpasses our capacity to comprehend and yet to live from it humbly day by day, to pursue the highest aims and reach for the greatest ends and yet to take off our shoes and sit against the radiator to visit the person who is lonely. Friends, you are invited today to embrace the perpetual discomfort of our faith. Because I can assure you that in it, you will find joy and belonging. And together, we will become dear one to another.